with racing, I really cared about my elbow angle and like what I looked like in the air. Oh, dude, what I look like in the air, like that was like my teens and like early twenties. That's all I cared about. more than women. I feel like is like I look <laughs> your <laughs> elbow angle was yeah, more dude, important like, than women. <laughs> dude, I swear, dude, I was like, how do I look in the air? Do I look look? Do I look like Jerry Graves right now? Okay, good. Hey, Yeti Nation, here we go. Season two, it is here and you're going to be stoked. A few weeks ago, I was able to sit down with Yeti Fox factory team rider, coffee roaster entrepreneur extraordinaire, elbow angle aficionado, and longtime Yeti family member, Sean Neer. We learned a little bit more about what it makes to get Sean out of the bed and why he races. And I can tell you, it is so much more than that perfect espresso. We actually go pretty deep into his weird obsession and the perfect elbow angle. We learned about how a well-paying oil field job meant Sean's riding might have been only confined to a before nine and after five hobby. But what is most interesting was to learn about how his dedication to riding meant living out of a leaky toiletless Ford Ecoline van just so he could ride and then ride some more. This was a great way to jump into the riding season. So let's get into it. Oh, way. I don't think Colorado's had snow this year. So this is something to celebrate. It's much needed. As much as I like riding in the winter, I've just been praying for snow. It's been such a dry, cold season, which has been good to train and all. But uh, yeah, it's kind of depressing to see. So yeah, hopefully we keep getting dumped on. How are you doing? I'm doing really good. Um, north of the border, it has been snowing a lot, um, but a totally interesting season. Because, uh, you know, obviously in Canada, there's super restricted travel and Americans can't come up. So that's something that I'm super used to. Um, but it's been pretty fun to dive right into the summertime here, talking about, well, I guess summer excitement, talking about uh, mountain bike things, talk Yeti to me. <laughs> so, Sean, are you ready to talk Yeti to me? <laughs> oh, that's what I'm here for. I always talk Yeti. <laughs> well, I mean, so it's, it's 5 p.m. mountain time. Um, even though it snowed, I've assumed you've probably ridden your bike or worked out, probably even roasted some coffee with traction. Um, so 5 PM, what's your beverage of choice? Are you, are you opening up with an espresso or are you cracking a beer right now? Oh, I've been maybe not sleeping the best. Um, so I've been trying to cut off the espresso at three. It used to be 5 PM. I'd be like, Oh, I'll get home from work or arrive like 4 30. Like, ah, maybe, you know, I'll just try out this new coffee. But I've uh, been trying to get more of like an eight, nine hour asleep night. But uh, beverage of choice, if I'm drinking Mezcal for sure. We went and did Trans Sierra Norte with the team. And ever since then, I've been on a Mezcal kick if I'm drinking. Okay. Um, and then, uh, yeah, it's either water or that. So what about you? Well, I just you're, figured you're, it's, it's, it's 4, 4 p.m. here, so I'm going <laughs> to... I was hoping I you're safe drinking a beer so you could join me, but I'm just going to go right ahead and go for it. <laughs> totally. No, I will. So, Sean, yeah. you're, you're based in Boulder. You're co-owner of Traction Coffee. Your role or um, you know, job as an athlete, you're on the EWS Yeti factory team. Your official teammate is Richie Rude, who's like USA's fastest enduro racer. But I've always wanted to ask you this question, and I, I'm so curious. You know, I know who you are. Many people that are on this podcast know who you are, but... If you're meeting someone for the first time, even outside of the mountain bike uh, world, and somebody asks you, maybe it's a Tinder date, maybe it's the pub, whatever, (laughs) (laughs) 
What do you do with your time? How do you answer that? I avoid a nine to five, if I'm being honest. Um, I do whatever I can to do what excites me, I guess, which was racing my whole life. And then I got super obsessive with coffee and that excited me. And I just had to go after that. And, you know, that passion came from days in the oil fields, working oil and gas with Blair being electricians. And one day I got this random, like really hot coffee on a negative degree day and like literally changed my life. I was like, what have I been doing? I, that <laughs> night I went and got a French press in this like big thermos and came the next day with just so much coffee and just like kept me warm all day and so much anxiety and I just like fell in love with it. And like, I don't know, like it was so good. Like I started learning about extraction rates with espresso and this and that and like different varieties. And I felt like it was the first thing from biking that I truly like dive deep into. Whereas in mountain biking with racing, I really cared about my elbow angle and like what I looked like in the air. Oh dude, what I look like in the air. Like that was like my teens and like early twenties. That's all I cared about. More than women, I feel like is like I <laughs> your elbow like, angle was yeah, more dude, important like, than women. <laughs> dude, I swear, dude. I was like, how do I look in the air? Do I look look? Do I look like Jerry Graves right now? Okay, good. You know, like and coffee was the first thing that I was like obsessive about. Like, were my extraction rates right? Was it channeling that more density of co- density of coffee on this side of the portafilter than this? And like. I just knew right then. I was like, all right, I have to do something with this. Um, I haven't been this excited about something in a long time. So for my whole life, I thought it was all biking. Like there was nothing that gave me that rush or that that feeling to express myself than, you know, jumping or hitting that corner perfect. Yeah. So very fortunate I found something like that. So I would well, say something. Yeah. Go for it. Oh, no. If someone was, it's a hard one. Like how do I express my free time? It's It's truly just like, trying to find things that excite me. That's, mm-hmm. that's what I try to do. But I guess I don't, before we get too far into the coffee road, I, I, how in your own words did you get into mountain biking? Cause it, it you know, from an outsider's perspective, um, here you are, you, you know, you roast coffee, you race yep. on, you know, the high end team you're in Boulder, which is, you know, that's a wealthy area. You're like, you're sessioning the park with your shirt off. It looks like a very glamorous lifestyle, but Sean, it's ne- it, that's not that's not where you come from. So um, I want to dive into that. How did it all start with you? Like, how did you get into mountain biking? And I know it started with racing. So how did how do you describe that? Totally. Um, yeah. So I grew up in super northern California. I was born in a little town called Crescent City, which is a few miles from the Oregon border, and started racing at a local BMX track. After I tried baseball, soccer, like team sports, and I was so bored. I remember there was one day I like cracked at a baseball game. I remember sitting in the dugout and I was just like, I cannot do this. I was eight and having like a midlife crisis. And uh, I told my dad, I was like, dude, I got to like, we got to do something, man. Like this is not working for me. And he just randomly on a day at work found this BMX track driving home. And he's like, you want to go check it out? And like first day, like just went there. wasn't even riding, but I just like fell in love with it. Just watching everyone. And there was two riders, Maddie and Dallas, who their parents on the track, and they kind of took me under the wing and helped me out a bit and showed me the ropes. And, you know, from there, raced for about four years until my family moved. There was no good jobs in Humboldt at the time. Mm-hmm. We moved down to the little town called McKinleyville. We moved to Colorado where my parents were, and there was a couple kids in the neighborhood that were racing four cross. 
in the Mountain States Cup and I was racing BMX and like, hey, you should try to get a hardtail. And, and eventually got my dad convinced to get me a Haro 8.1 from the fix and tried mountain biking. I was kind of getting burnt out on BMX, the nationals, and went to a Mountain States Cup at um, in Snowmass. And it was just the most welcoming family there. Like everyone mm-hmm. was just happy to be there drinking Dale's Pale Ale. I remember seeing Jared and everyone just like, I was just starstruck of like what this was versus BMX. And that was my first race in 2004, um, yeah. race four cross and then went to Durango for national champs and just started in four cross. And I truly just fell in love with it. Like it was like going into BMX for the first time. And, um, I truly haven't looked back ever since I've never thought about racing BMX or doing ever anything ever since. So that's kind of my beginning was BMX to four cross around the age of 12. And that, that planted the seed, obviously. Oh, it was the best. And then, especially when I got into downhill, like there's Mm -hmm. something about a timed run where it's just you, that course, and just trying to be perfect. It's just like writing a song, I guess. Like I, I like the competitiveness of four cross and BMX bumping elbows, but there's something about just that perfect run with you in the track that I just like fell in love with. And when I got to downhill, I was just over four cross and that natural progression in of seeing everyone in Europe at Schladming and Champery. And I just remember looking up to those people that were racing those in the magazines and just wanting to travel there. It was just, my life was obsessed of looking at those tracks and those, the, that type of racing. So let, let me get the time frame correct on this. So you are mid teens and you are dedicated to downhill racing. Is that right? Yep. I would say like 12 to 15 was four cross and then 16, 17, I was still doing both. And then like, yeah, like 17, I like wanted to get, make a push for worlds and downhill. And so I'd say 17, I was like fully committed to downhill at that point. And you kind of like, you were a natural, you had very much a natural skill in this. You had pretty good success in terms of, you know, racing junior. Is that right? Yep. Um, yeah, I definitely, you know, having that BMX background helps so much and very fortunate for that. And yeah, like I would say rode on skill a little bit more than I should have. I should have trained more. And I just didn't know what I was doing back then. And it hindered me, but it kept it fun at the same time of just goofing off at the at the dirt jumps and riding the skate park. I think it built a lot of fundamental skills and kept it kept me from burning out. So, mm-hmm. well, I want to dive into it this direction now, Sean, because I know that it's not just your classic storybook where you went from downhill and then you got on the Yeti team started racing EWS, had everything handed to you because things got pretty rough when you were 18, right? Totally. Yeah. Like the Mountain States Cup died out. You know, I definitely could have done more and things, you know, like just didn't pan out like I, I thought they would. You know, I was battling with Ropolato at the time, made Worlds team and just didn't make the connections I needed to and ended up, you know, 18, no ride and kind of life hit me. I was like, do I keep trying to race or get on with my life and ended up just becoming an electrician, you know, and yeah, it was a, definitely a big turn for me. I didn't know if that was the right thing. I started being an electrician, making good money and like 
all I thought about was racing. It was kind of a weird time for me. I remember being working in oil and gas and like every day I was just like mad at myself that I left this one thing that I thought I was the best, like what I would truly be best mm-hmm. at in life gone. I never thought, I thought this factory ride was this mystical creature that I couldn't touch and like didn't know at the time, like why I couldn't reach it. And yeah, I kind of went through a couple of years of being pretty depressed about it all and just like couldn't get it out of my head. So eventually, you know, after a couple of years of working oil and gas, packed my stuff up and moved to Whistler, not even to race. It was just to become a bike bum because it's what I wanted mm-hmm. to do. And it was kind of life-changing just to fall in love with my bike again. Cause I wasn't riding that much from like 18 to 22. I was just kind of working and in this weird spot in life and 23, 24, just did the bike bum up in Whistler with my girlfriend at the time, Kel, um, my first ever sponsor, Shawnee Mack from the fix and mm-hmm. just became one with my bike. That's how I'd explain it. Like I was able to turn my brain off when I ride and, yeah, like those two years in Whistler are very transforming for me and very fortunate of them. Well, are you, I guess I want to ask, are you proud of yourself? Because, you know, I've seen so many kids, uh, local towns where it's like they are the up and coming kid and they do well. They do, you know, pretty decent on the national um, series and they've got all this potential and then all of a sudden, it, this happens time and time again. You get stuck with the wrong crowd. You you know find a job working away from town, and they kind of give up. And that's that's actually their life choice. They end up going down this road. They they had all this potential, but they chose a job. And are you proud of yourself for those late teens, early twenties? And you call yourself a bike bomb, but in a lot of ways, you're following your dreams. Do you, do you look at it that way? I guess now. I mean, those years in Whistler. I didn't have the idea of going racing. It was just to pursue my passion and it was just opportunity that kind of rose. And looking back now, yeah, I think I would say I'm proud. You know, it's an interesting thing. Like the biggest thing for me that I'm like grateful for besides like a healthy family or something like that was like monetizing my passion. If I'm being honest, Mm -hmm. like it's not like this glamorous life, but you know, I'm able to, figure out how to help sponsors and this and like ride Mm -hmm. my bike for a living like that. It fills my cup every day. You know what I mean? And Mm -hmm. it's been a journey. Like I think all these kids that, you know, come up and have that talent. If I know, I always think about what I could tell myself and it's a few years of sacrifice now can lead to so much great times down the line. And it took a lot of sacrifice in my twenties of, you know, living in a van with my, with my girl at the time and like for a full winter, just to save enough money to go racing in the summer and like going race to race and trying to like make this a thing and not knowing if it's ever going to come out. And those years of sacrifice of putting the time in really do pay dividends. If you don't have that perfect trajectory from juniors up to a factory ride. And yeah, it's just, I think it's just being stubborn enough, really. Like there's so many kids that can do it if they just basically say like my life is over if I don't do this you know what Mm -hmm. I mean there is no other option and that's what in my head something clicked when we moved up to Whistler and I found that love with again I did I raced crankworks and did well and then came back the next year and did even better and I was like all right something clicked that year and I was like this is what I have to do this is what makes me truly happy and I it was like a a healthy thing but almost a bad thing at the same time I would show up to races and be like 
I need to qualify for this World Cup. I need to win this race or my life is over. You know, like that's how I looked. Like, <laughs> that's I'm gonna how go you back. saw it. Yeah, I was like, I'm going to go back to this this job I hate. And, you know, I'm not going to be the person I want to be. And I look at it now, it's like I would not be as compassionate as a person or like see the things I do if I worked a job that I didn't didn't like. And I, that's the thing in life I'm most fortunate for is to work with a company like Yeti mm-hmm. that's to help me achieve my dreams and like goals in life. And it's truly changed me as a person and made me happier being able to do that. And it wasn't even in the beginning, like getting these results, like, you know, like getting trophy of nations or like getting yeah. first at a world cup. It was truly just traveling to these places. I saw in magazines as a kid, that's all <laughs> yeah. I cared about. Like I wanted to go to, you know, Europe was that one mystical creature that I just mm-hmm. like could never get to as a kid. And yeah. Um, once I got there, like the first season, you know, I came later in life, like as far as like a factory ride, like I think mm-hmm. 27 was like when I fully got on with Yeti and like, that's pretty old, like in action sports. And, but I feel like I had figured out mentally what I needed to do. And like, I was way more mature and like, mm-hmm. I wish obviously I don't know. I, I go back and forth. If I wish I would have came from junior straight up, if I would appreciate it as much as I do now, because that first year in Europe, I was starstruck, man. Like every time we were out, like didn't matter how big of a climb, I was just like, I'm in Europe. Like I did it. I, I did <laughs> this it. This is it. I did it. You know <laughs> what I mean? And like, I don't know, like I'm still just so fortunate, like no matter how bad the intervals or this and that, like it's just provided me a life of being happy. And that's like, all that I care about you know so that's what keeps me going and um yeah I hope any kids listening like if you figure out what you want there mm-hmm. is no plan b like do just do it be stubborn enough to like mm-hmm. bail on your friends when you need to train and keep it fun or like whatever that is like you got to have a plan and like that was when my life changed it was like this is what I'm doing and there's no option b and I just went for it that's when everything changed for me but when I was like kind of like oh I could be an electrician or I could do this or like this. And like, I was so unsure, like I didn't get the results and it was so underwhelming when I went to the races mm-hmm. and didn't get the results. But when I made that shift and got a trainer and started thinking in the right ways and being positive and like figuring out what to do, like I just became the person that I always wanted to be, you know, of just riding my bike. That's all I want to do. It's so simple at the end of the day, but so complicated <laughs> at the same time. But what I interpret is, you know, I can't imagine working as an electrician in the oil fields is super fulfilling. You know, like the way I'm interpreting this is that was a shitty job. That sucked. But you, but you were able to find this. You followed your passion. And it's, it's, it's almost given you that true appreciation. Because if you had that factory ride when you were 16 years old, do you not think that your mindset would be a little bit different? Oh, 100%. And... I think it's just life choices, right? Like I could have had kids and bought that house and like a nice car. And like, those are the things I didn't care about. I mean, obviously I wanted a nice car, but like, those are the sacrifices (laughs) you make, you know? And like, obviously it was looking back now, I'm so happy that I saved the money and Mm -hmm. went up to Whistler versus like buying all these things. And like, yeah, it's just, it's interesting. I feel like you set yourself up with families and this and that. And like, then you have to, like, you know, if I had a kid at 21 or 22, my life would have been a lot different of, yo, like I got to provide for this family. But instead, you know, it's like, you can kind of be narcissistic and be like, Hey, like, this is what makes me happy. So it's hard. Like I see those people in the oil fields that were providing for their families and doing such a selfless thing. 
Whereas like me, I was like, oh, I'm going to go live in Whistler and like ride my bike. And like, I feel like it's this like juggle of like the choices you make and what you have on your yeah. plate. And like at that age, I didn't have much on my plate. And it was like, Hey babe, you want to go like live in Whistler and ride bikes and have and live life, you know? And like, she was like, of course, like she was working at a software industry job and like, didn't like it dealing with people on the phone all day. And, uh, it's just the timing, the pieces fit because you align <laughs> yourself. It's all the choices that you make. You're able to take advantage of the opportunity that arises. I see the same thing in racing. It's like, yeah. you really don't, there's not so much luck. It's like, you have to be fit enough and like train enough and put yourself in a good position to accept the luck that comes at you. Whereas if you don't come in with a high enough ceiling to win the race, it doesn't matter how lucky you mm -hmm. are, you're not going to win. So I feel like luckily just knowing what I wanted in life allowed me to extend that journey once the Whistler opportunity arose. Help me understand the turning point. Um, you're racing downhill in Whistler or are you racing uh, enduro? Downhill. I just okay. full on lift. I was so out of shape, not out of shape, but like I was not, I, I pedal a little bit, but all I wanted in life was to do crab apple hits and a-line laps and garbo laps that's all i wanted as much as possible i wanted 100 days on that pass and just to have fun that's all mm -hmm. i wanted and uh yeah so race crankworks randomly i was like oh maybe i should enter crankworks and the first year well, which event which which race in crankworks canadian open the, okay the that's which one, is a downhill obviously. so you're, you're yeah, racing downhill. a down, you're, you're racing a downhill bike at this point totally on a bike that the rear wheels hitting the chain stays. It's so bad. The tires are clapped. <laughs> like just, you know, every day is like, where can we get a meal for $5? You know, like <laughs> yeah. that was, it's like, where can you get a meal for five bucks? And in, how Whistler. Many, in Whistler and how many laps can you do? That was like the two questions. Like how cheap can I eat? And how many laps can my hands take? That was like my life. And it was the best. And, uh, I just like, maybe I should enter Canadian open. And, that year, um, got top 20 and like second American. And I was like, that's pretty cool. And didn't think much of it. Next year came up and um, team hype man, Blair Reed had a house and just like parked my van in his driveway and lived out of the van all summer. And um, ended up entering again, just randomly got top 10 for uh, top American. And that was kind of the tipping point of like, hmm, like maybe I should pursue this. And mm -hmm. that next went home to boulder that winter kel and i moved into the van full time we lived that whole winter in boulder in the van which was really cold um because we it wasn't a nice van like the sprinters you see these days it's a 1993 <laughs> um ford econoline van that it, she's rustic as i like to call it um <laughs> no it was just bad like the big changing point is when i got a little toilet in there and we didn't have to go outside in the middle of the night to pee Ooh, that was heaven, dude. And uh, <laughs> I ended up going to Angel Fire for the second Pro GRT on SB6, a Yeti SB6 that I threw a 40 on because I saw Jared and Richie mm -hmm. throwing the DH6 together. And I was like, dude, that looks so good. Ended up because that, that fall that I came back from Whistler was the first time I was in, introduced to Yeti. Um, Joey hit me up. I was like, hey, I'm going to Crested Butte for my first ever paid film trip, do you want, I would really like to have you as a writer. I was like, count me in. Like, this is the best thing ever. Um, and we, we shot it, filmed it with Rudy Unrau and Michael Larson and just had a ball. 
and it kind of got my foot. It was the first thing ever in my life that I got my foot in with the industry. And then that February, still living in the van, Rich or uh, Joey was like, "Hey, you want to go to Green River and shoot something <laughs> on the the six? And that's when the like that Canyon Gap photo came out. And that that photo was kind of life changing. Um, it's definitely the scariest thing I've probably done. And basically, that got my foot in the door with industry with Yeti and Envy Smith. And that was kind of the big turning point in my career of having Yeti as a, as a sponsor. I was an ambassador, just a media ambassador, but they were, mm-hmm. you know, give me a frame, a name to race under. And just like, even that gives you confidence and like knowing that you have a stepping stone, even though they weren't in downhill, just having that brand name and like a, a company like Yeti was the biggest thing. It was the biggest thing for me, man. Like just coming from bike shop deals. And like, even though those were huge for me when I was young, like having Shawnee sponsor me, was life-changing but when i first got like hey like i have a company that's letting me be a part of their brand which is a it's a big deal for someone like you're the name or the face of their brand and to have that trust it made me ride harder train harder and i went to angel fire that year on a dh6 just a trail bike a sb6 with a 40 on it and one by three and a half seconds like there was names there at the time like charlie harrison um, Brent Atkinson and I was kind of a nobody and like that truly gave me the confidence that I needed. It was like, Hey, like this is what I'm doing. Like that race. I was like, I'm going to be a professional racer. Like it gave me all the confidence I needed. Especially like, it's good to get like a top 10 at a bigger race, but to actually yeah. win was like, yeah. that's what I needed. That first like real pro win. And I was like, this is it. That, that was the turning point was the angel fire 2015 result was what I needed. And like, I still can't believe how good the SB6 with the 40 on. There was something about that shock tune too. I always, <laughs> I always tell the team like, can you figure out what shock tune I had that year? Like, I don't know. <laughs> like there was that. something about, no, I don't even know. Like there was just something pure about that year. There was no expectations. That bike just was so nimble with the downhill fork on it. And um, I don't know. It was just the feelings I got from that year. It was perfect. I need to stop and make sure that everyone that's listening sees that photo of you doing that Canyon Gap because <laughs> that's Red Bull Rampage stuff. Like, I don't under, how did you, how, how, why did you do that, Sean? Because I was a broke kid that like just wanted some free tires or free tires. <laughs> dude. I was just like anything. I was like anything to get my foot in the door with the industry. And like, it was so funny. Like, I, we built this hip jump next to it and like I kept looking at it and it's hard to visualize with like a huge you know it's like I don't know 50 60 foot drop maybe to the canyon floor like if you mm-hmm. mess it up you're you're not in good shape maybe paralyzed you're, you're done like you're it's done everyone needs to see that photo it's it's right I think it's on your bio on the the yeti website but it, that thing's totally. huge that's red but, bull like, it's like that's winning that that's a winning run rampage thing and that was years ago that was not recent yeah i was yeah that was seven years ago now six years ago like it's been a long road with yeti man and it was it was one of those things that i knew i needed to like step out and Mm -hmm. just do for myself and i knew i could do it and it was so funny i kept throwing dirt i couldn't tell how long it was i didn't have a measuring tape it was just joey myself and dustin zeiss who was helping dig out there in the middle of the desert we didn't know what we were doing like it was joey's second ever film trip and I just sat there and th- throw dirt clods across it. And then I would turn to where it was fully land and I would throw the dirt clod like the same distance. And then I'd pace it out and count out how many steps. I'd be like, ah, it's like 43 feet. 
Now I go back and throw dirt clods across it and then turn to dirt and throw it across and then step it out again. I was like, dude, I feel like I've hit jumps about this long. Cause you have like a jump vocabulary. I was like, all right, I've hit those jumps in Whistler. I know exactly roughly the speed, you know, the lips, not too steep. And I re- rolled into it a couple times and I was just like, Joey, turn your camera on. Let's do it. And I rolled up <laughs> and, uh, I was, dude, it was like, I was proud of my, talking about being proud. I was proud. Like I dropped in. I feel like at that time I wasn't as good of a rider, as confident as a rider. So mm-hmm. I would, you know, when you go in last minute, you like pull your brakes and you're just like, ah, you know, like I was just, I knew that couldn't be the jump. Cause if you miss braked and then either went over the lip or cased, like it's game over. So on my head up the top, I was like, either do it. It's either a hell yeah or a hell no right now. And I had mm-hmm. to make that decision. And I was just like, you have to do this. And it was a hell yeah. And I dropped in, hit it. And I was like, I can't believe I did that. Like I was shaking. I come over and Joey's like, it's sick. You did that. But, um, uh, we need to like have good light for this. So we need to hit this at like, <laughs> we need to do this again at like 6 30 AM when the sun peaks over the, um, the mountains and we're in green river. I'm just like, Oh my God. So like going home that night to the hotel and thinking about, I'm on a demo bike. I guess we got to go back to this. I, I don't even ride for Yeti at the time. Like they've just pulled a Yeti demo mm-hmm. bike out of the fleet that has EXO tires on it, some carbon bars that are all kind of scratched. You know, I don't know how mm-hmm. hard they've been crashed, like, <laughs> and don't know how much tire, tire sealant is in them. And all I could think about was like burping a tire on the lip or like a handlebar snapping or like all these things are running through my head. I'm like, oh my gosh, like change the tires, make sure there's sealant in them. And I'm just like, all right, all right. So we get up there. It's pitch black in the morning. Like it was more scary the night before mm-hmm. than any other time just thinking about it. And I get to the top, you know, like I'm not that experienced of a rider at the time. And I just go up there. I'm like, Joey, tell me when to when to drop in because it's, it's too dark to practice on anything else. He wanted just perfect sunrise right over the LaSalle Mountains. And I sit up there and Joey finally like tells me to drop. So I drop and hit it. Luckily do it well. And I'm like, Oh my God, I'm, I'm shaking. I'm like, I'm so over this thing. I've never hit <laughs> anything like it before. You know, like I'm not a rampage rider and like I go over and I'm like over it. I'm like, this thing is stupid. I'm done. And Joey's just like looking at me and then looking up at the sky. And then he looks back at me, looks up at the sky. And it, I'm just like, don't, don't even. And he's like, I have ethical problems telling a rider to do something like this again, but the light is way better. And I'm just like, I hate you so much right now. <laughs> so like me being a nobody, like I can't say no to Joey or yeah. like any of these sponsors. So I'll like hike my little butt back up the hill. And I'm like, tell me when Joey. <laughs> and I hit it again. And I just like told him, I was like, you better have the shot. Like I am not doing that thing again. Cause like, I don't know. just like, I mean, I, I imagine Samanek or the boys would hit it and have no problem. But at the time, I was just like, uh-uh, like three times is enough for me, dude. I mm-hmm. cannot do this thing again. So, But in many ways, this is this is Joey Schusler. In many ways, Joe, you, were, you say Joey was kind of your saving grace. He got your foot in the door with Yeti. And it was part of this turning point in terms of not just race results, but, you know, actually a career. So let me get the story right. So, you know, you did this rad gap. You went to Angel Fire. You had a really good result. Um, I'm having a hard time understanding because it's like you kind of got the free rider in you, but you're also um, posting really good race results. So was it this year? This was the year of the turning point. Is that right? 
Totally. So that the Canyon Gap, yeah, it was like February of that year and then went and did Angel Fire. But I was in a weird position because Yeti was full blown Enduro at this time. Mm-hmm. And that's when, you know, Jared and Richie were um, the factory team. And I was wanting to do downhill. That's where my heart was. So basically, I would just do these media um, shoots with Joey and then just go back in my van and go. Uh, chasing racing and i was hoping to put up enough results that i could you know establish a downhill career and so i was kind of in this weird like limbo of like what am i doing and hopefully just put up enough results that either yeti would pick me up for an enduro ride or um another team would pick me up for a downhill ride i really didn't have any plans i just downhill is all i knew at the time i didn't know anything Mm -hmm. else so it was just like if there's someone that you know, wants to use my skills or my media assets. Like that is my, my first ever foot in the door. Like I'm going to take advantage of it fully. Like it was a blessing. You know what I mean? Like Joey hitting me up for that shoot. It truly was life like life saving for me. I would not be talking to you. I would not be doing talk mm-hmm. Yeti to me without Joey Schusler. And um, yeah, I think I would definitely be working a nine to five doing something I don't enjoy. If I didn't get that call for Elk Meadows, that CB trip, in 2014. Well, how did, cause even if you look at your Instagram, you definitely have the skill set of being a free rider. So how, how did this all work? How did it end up where you set your target on Enduro? So I think it was definitely placed. There was a lot of different elements that came into that. I think being under the Yeti umbrella and seeing, looking up to Jared, like Jared was one of those people I looked up to my whole life. I remember being at the mountain States cup races and seeing Jared just decked out in like the most perfect clothing and just hitting all the gaps you wanted to hit that perfect style, perfect elbow, perfect like, elbow, the perfect out, dude, I have something about an elbow angle. Don't get me started. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, but dude, Jared was that rider. I mean, I think Jared is the most talented person that's ever graced a bike. He went to the Olympics and BMX. He's, you know, bronze medalist in downhill world champion in enduro world champion in four cross he's killing it in road crit races like anything that he touches he can do well on like if there is one person in all of cycling that i look up to it's jared i mean how can you count him out so when i saw him and richie especially richie coming from like a junior world title into enduro it like started sparking that i was like what is up with enduro you know and you know and i kept doing my downhill thing and i had this crash that was kind of a turning point for me i went to i made worlds living out of my van racing on the sb6 in 2016 we went to val the soul and i got such a bad concussion it was Mm -hmm. not the i don't know concussions are scary but there was something about that concussion and then how much ride time there was at downhill races. I felt like I was always wanting a little bit more. And when I did my first like big enduro, I remember getting off the bike and being like that. I don't want to ride my bike anymore. Like I had enough. Yeah. Whereas like when I went to Val de Sol and like these other mountains in and like you see this one way racetrack and then the, the hotel. And then like, that's all you see. But in enduro, like you could do eight different tracks and like stop for espresso at the little cafe and, I just felt so fulfilled after a weekend of mm-hmm. racing where downhill, I just felt like something was lacking um, in the sense of what we got to see and the experience of the weekend. So 
those two things were like kind of the big things that turned me into enduro and i'm so grateful for it like the amount of places we get to see that are new the type of tracks that we get to ride vary so much we're always riding new terrain that you don't get to see much so you kind of have to like race almost like 40 percent of it blind and i really think it plays to like strength of just like kind of sending it and being like mature in the sense of like hey like this is you just got to play it live i guess i don't know i just love the the style of enduro you know what i want to i i'm gonna butcher this quote but when we were riding together you said something <laughs> that really stuck with me and um what it was something along lines of especially you coming spending all this time in whistler this is where it comes from and you said that Canadians aren't necessarily the fastest racers in the world because they have access to all these tracks. And from an outsider, like from my perspective, you would think that if you grew up in Whistler or you're, you, you grew up in Western Canada, you have access to the best training grounds. You have, yep. you know, the Whistler Bike Park, you've got the Silver Star Bike Park, and there's all these bike parks opening up. You have the gnarliest terrain. You have access to all these different, we'll call them tracks. But what you said is, is like some of the fastest racers don't come from those locations. And why is that, Sean? I like this. Totally. Yeah. Butchered a little bit, but yeah, yeah I totally butchered I, it. But uh, <laughs> yeah, let me, st- let me stimulate the conversation. Totally. Um, no, I was always intrigued why more, you know, world cup racers didn't come from Canada. Like every time I went up there, I was like, these are the best trails in the world. You know, like you have Stevie Smith and Finn, but like, besides that, it's like Australia was pumping out all these amazing riders and you see Gwenny coming from Temecula. And like, I think there's something to these people coming from places. There aren't so many trails where you can just like, Oh, I'll go ride this one. And this one, like, I think there's something to dialing in kind of a crappy track. That's hard to ride. And like worrying about where your elbow angle and like what your form is um, like thinking about Sam Hill in Perth and, you know, Jared come from Toowoomba. Like, I think it dials in their form of riding, really hard terrain that doesn't really flow well and yeah i think i kind of got lucky like you think boulder of this mecca of mountain biking but there's really not much like you're on these multi-use trails and i usually ride this place called hall ranch that is a super rocky kind of jank place and i just ended up there a bunch of just trying to like beat myself and like trying to ride the same corner i would stop and hit the session the same corner you know, 20 times and see with the inside work with the outside work. And I just had a lot of fun trying like sessioning these types of um, tracks. And I think in Canada, when like there's such good tracks, you just do like a top to bottom and then you like just try this other one. And like, I could see how you wouldn't want to mess up the experience of riding that dope trail. Whereas like when you need to be more creative on the trail, cause it's not as exciting. Like it can maybe make you better of a racer, but my head always went to like, why hasn't Canada, BC in mm-hmm. general, like pumped out 20, uh, 10 different World Cup stars, you know? So I think there is something defining the, the jank trail by your house and becoming a legend on it. Just ride it until you know every inch of it. Well, your teammate, Richie Rude, you know, he, he didn't grow up in a mountain town. Why is he so fast? I know. Richie, yeah. So... Yeah, exactly. Like what kind of janks he riding in Connecticut and yeah, it's his trajectory. Like just seeing what Richie can do on a bike is absolutely stunning. Like, especially at our, our level, it's not him hitting the gaps that blows my mind. It's where his breaking points are. 
where he's digging his heels in, where he's making these quick cuts. Like, I think what intrigues me and like is jaw dropping to me. Like a lot of people wouldn't even notice. It's like, he has his bike so settled and calm where I'm like out of sorts. And I'm just like, this is what I always wanted. And we were in Whistler in 2019, right before the race. And something clicked up there of just seeing where he braked, how he was like coming into banks and using those as breaking points instead of just like, Oh, I'm going to drag breakthrough here. He was so methodical of timing his compressions with his braking. So he was unweighted mm-hmm. and then wait into the corner. Perfect. And dude, he, uh, don't get me started on Richie. I'll keep going, dude. That kid <laughs> is an artist so- on a bike. The, you know what was so cool is you know we were we were doing a a, a product shoot or an outerwear shoot with Yeti. Um, it was actually the last time I rode my bike. We were in uh, Boulder, and there was this just one corner. And it, out of all riding all season long, Sean, you had me so stumped. I couldn't nail it. There was this like you would like ride in super quick. You hit your brake at this one point, and then you just rallied around this this berm, this like left hand berm, and I couldn't do it. I watched you like time and time again, you would just rally in, put your brakes on at a certain time and, and around. Like I, you know, obviously anyone could ride around it, but I couldn't nail, nail it for speed. And what was cool is that is really what solidified where like, if I race in EWS, I'm happy if I get top 50th, like I'm psyched. Yeah. But that right there was the difference between getting top 50 and getting in the top 20. Would totally. you say it's corners and those types of things that you learned from Richie that, that gets you in the top 10? Totally. It's funny. I watched that video the other day of that corner and it was truly timing where you're breaking, pressing into the ground and then unweighting into that, that corner and pressing. It's like really just that timing piece and something I want to like show to the, the Yeti Devos. And like, I think it's those small details that, you know, help so much at our level. Cause it's like the top 30 to top 10, it's like these, these small little minute details that take you so far and I think it's just being able to like not think about it and just do it. You know, like I think those years in Whistler really was able to like turn my brain off and just like ride instead of being like, Oh, I should have done this. I should have done that. Mm-hmm. You just start doing it second nature. And then when I started riding with Richie, I started seeing these, these other things that I'd never even seen. Like each rider that you ride with has their own artistic flair of, you know, they ride dirt jumps that they ride moto back in the day. And like, you can just kind of, pick and choose and like cross pollinate and you know i can show richie a couple things and he can show me obviously he's showing me a little bit more because it's richie but you know I, i've showed him a couple things but, what's, <laughs> but uh, what's the, yeah go for it but no like it it really is those 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 little small pieces of like being able to break and make sure you're waiting in the right times and being able to slow down and like ride at a composed level but such at a top level that you know you're slowing down that you can rip that corner and knowing where the edge is. So yeah, it's, it's an interesting thing to, to think about where the top 50 versus the top 30 is. Cause it's like, it is these small details that add up to so much. And I think that perfectionist, I think each professional rider that gets to like the top 20, top 10 have to be a perfectionist in that level because those details add up to such a big time after eight stages on a weekend. How much does natural skill um, play in? Like, can I, can I train to get to the level of getting top 10? Or how much does natural skill play in to the, um, the performance? Yeah, that's an interesting question. I, I think about it when 
I see juniors coming up because I see a ceiling that they have, you know, like you have how hard the kid works mm-hmm. or how much natural talent they have. And that gives them a ceiling before they even come into the race. It's like, you know, like you look at some of the world cups, like, you know, there's probably eight guys that can win. Right. And natural talent, I think is more important than that, that work hard. But then at a certain level, everyone's good. Like you look at the yeah. top 15, top 20, everyone's good. And there's a quote, my buddy DL, he's an old moto pro that told me is like, we're up. Talent gets beat. Oh, sorry. I'm gonna I'm gonna mess this quote oh, up. Said it. No, it's uh <laughs> DL said that talent gets beat by oh I can't think of it right now. Oh my gosh. But basically it's talent gets beat when he doesn't work hard because oh yeah. I'm I can't even say it right now. But obviously, oh dude, I'm messing it up so bad right now. No, no, this is you know, <laughs> what, what's what's cool with this is you know, I was just talking to your your coach, Damian Smith, or team yeah. manager. And he was saying that you've always had the, the natural skill. That's all, it's always been there. But then as soon as you've, you dove into training, you, it kind of took it to the next level. Did, did you find that? Or do you think that you can just survive merely off natural skill? Oh, no, there's no way you can. I think natural skill gives you a, a ceiling, a higher ceiling. Mm-hmm. But it wasn't until I hooked up with um, my trainer, Joe Lewis in Boulder, that I took it to the next level and it because your talent falls out the door when you get tired, especially in enduro. Mm-hmm. Like mm-hmm. once, once you do a one minute climb up a fire road and have to drop into the steepest trail you've ever looked at, you're going to ride terribly. So my, my train or my riding changed leaps and bounds once I started taking training seriously. And it, I would come into races more confident because I knew I put the time in. I could just clear my head. I knew I'd done what I needed to do coming into races. Um, that's why I think when you're younger, like that natural talent of just like having fun on the bike is such a mm-hmm. crucial role. But then when that switch needs to hit and you're like, hey, this needs to be a profession. And I think that becomes around like 17 to 20. If you're like trying to make that push, like that's when you need to start really thinking about a training plan of, you know, kind of some structured rides. But I think, you know, in those teenage years, it's really how, like the dirt jumps are crucial. BMX tracks of just like having friends that push you. Like that was a huge thing going to the dirt Mm -hmm. jumps and having people that looked up to. And those years of just building that skill and not worrying about training, like really helped me raise my ceiling of just raw talent. But then I held myself back by not training but then the year I just was like, hey, I'm going to train. This is what I want to do. My life changed. Like you have to. Yeah. Like, everyone's incredibly talented in the top 30 EWS, mm-hmm. top 50, right? But then like it comes down, like, especially the top 20. You know, all those other dudes are training. Like in my head, every day when I wake up, I'm like, what's Richie doing today? Like, what do I need <laughs> to do? Like, obviously I have my training schedule, but like thinking about what Richie's doing and how hard he's working and then how hard you know, polar bear works to get our bikes running, what Damien Smith is doing to get us to the races and have everything set for us makes me work harder. So like being on that team just makes you accountable. And like, once I started training like that and feeling like I needed to bring stuff to the table, it just cleared my head when I came to races. Like I'm, it just Mm -hmm. gave me that confidence I needed. Well, actually I want to ask that because, um, so polar bear, incredible mechanic, 
you were saying back to you had this like Fox 40, you just want to go back to SB6 where the suspension was set up perfectly. How important is it that your bike and, and how much advantage does do these team riders have over, let's say, the privateers in terms of getting in the top whatever? Totally. Um, yeah, I, I'd like to ride that SB6 with the 40 on it. I wonder if these days I'd be like, dude, what were you doing? Because it's like, it was the turning point in my career. So like that year was just, it's very special to me. So I'd like to know if that was actually good, but it's funny. Like now that I have like Mark Hill and polar bear working on my bikes, like I came from, you know, having the most clapped out bikes in Whistler. And now when I hop on a fresh build from polar bear, it's like the one thing I don't take um, for granted. It's, it makes me so happy inside when my bike's quiet, my wheels, not wobbly, like truly like every time I get my bike and it's freshly built, it's, it feels like I have a fresh bike every time I go to race. And mm-hmm. it definitely is an advantage you know what I mean? Like I, I get on my bike, we have Fox, Shimano, Renthal, you know, a Yeti suspension platform. Like I get on my bike and I'm like, I'm riding the best bike. Like yeah. if I was to pay money, this is the bike I would buy. And I'm not just saying that cause I'm sponsored by them. Like truly like, I mean, you ask anybody like, Mm -hmm. And I think that confidence of just having that and it's freshly built, like, you know, the best mechanic just touched it. Nothing's going to break. Whereas like sometimes in the mid off season, when I'm working on my bikes, I'm like, "Eh," like, you know, like maybe I shouldn't huck this double, you know, like maybe I haven't tightened anything. Like maybe I have a linkage bolt, but you know, cause that's on me cause I'm not the best mechanic. But when I have, you know, polar bear, like I have full confidence in my bike and my gear at all times. It definitely is a big deal in my opinion to have that. So we just had a summer with essentially no racing. You raced a couple of the BMEs. There, there was a little bit of an EWS um, in Europe in a lot of ways. I guess the, this is the question is, do you think there's a bit of a shakeup going into the season? Do you think that there's certain riders that have uh, an advantage going into the new season? That's a really good question. Um, I think it depends on the rider. I think a lot of riders are going to be kind of rejuvenated from it. You know, like mm-hmm. race seasons are taxing, especially when you're on contract year. Like you don't know if you're going to have a ride the next year or this and that. And like, it's very emotionally de- like draining and like physically draining. And I think you look at like Ken Roxon and moto, like he took a season off from outdoor moto cause he wasn't feeling well and like came back rejuvenated. Whereas I think, it just depends rider to rider. I think some people will come out guns a blazing because they've been training their butt off. And I think some people maybe will kind of ramp into the season. I think that's going to be round one is going to be the round to watch. That is a really good question. And uh, yeah, I think only time will tell. Well, what I find really interesting watching you, Sean, even before I met you is like, you are right there. You're you've beat Richie you've put in some super fast times. I remember, uh, was it two years ago in Whistler, you might've even won the first day. You are right there. You haven't made it. You haven't done the podium, like obviously uh, Trophy of Nations, you've won that, but you're nipping at Richie's heels. It's kind of right on that tipping point from my perspective. So what is it going to take to flip over that tipping point? What is it going to take for you to be number one on that podium? Totally. Um, time in Europe was big for me. I felt like I had this skill set that I built over here in Colorado and it didn't apply in Europe. And it really took like a year and a half of just like figuring out, like sometimes taking a foot off 
and sweeping around this corner is like faster. And, um, mm-hmm. and just like figuring in, figuring out the training, like I'm a lot more dialed in, I'm more confident and just the time with Richie has been crucial. And I really think just making sure that I fully believe in myself and seeing that I have the speed, like in Zermatt in Switzerland, the end of 2019, I had the speed and I think just confidence is half the battle, which makes our spar- sport so beautiful. Like, yeah, you can be as fit and as fast as you want, but if you don't believe in yourself and have that confidence, you're never going to make it. So I think just knowing in your head that you can do it and then backing it up with the the fitness and then the the skill is there. So I think for me, it was just that confidence of being like, yo, like I can beat Sam Hill, you know, like mm-hmm. you need to go into a race saying that and like growing up idolizing those people is kind of hard at first until you beat them on stages and you're like, huh, like I'm there, you know, it's a big stepping stone. And it took me a while to find those skills in Europe and find that confidence, but I finally have it, especially yeah, going one, two with Richie, um, in Whistler day one, mm-hmm. like that was huge. Right. And then being in Zermatt and getting going one, two with Sam, um, like on some stages and those are, those are the steps you need. And then at the end of the day, it's really consistency, making sure that you're fit enough to round the day out. Like you can't just start off and then just fade out throughout the day. And I think that was part of my problem was just like, you're getting there each year you kind of build on your fitness and i finally like kind of refined the last two years of what i've been doing and putting the time in and i truly believe that i have you know the fitness and the skill and Mm -hmm. it's just really that belief system if you are putting the time in so i'm excited to see where where 2021 takes us well then i'm going to follow up with the most cliche sports (laughs) newscaster question and it is what can we expect to see from sean near this season Ooh, that's a good question. Um, first off, I'm really bummed that Chile is not happening because that is the coolest race ever. And like stage two last year or in 2018, a 22-minute run, it was the most savage thing, dude. You were screaming at your hands. Like you knew that the steepest part was at the end and you could barely – you're like almost blowing a hand on the bar. And uh, it was – the first race that I'd gone to that was mentally as tough as physically, because usually it's your legs giving up or your heart rate's maxed. But like Chile was just like in your head, like your hands hurt so bad. Like you're like, I'm going to blow a hand on the bar and kill myself. And uh, it was just like being like, dude, you can do this. Like go, 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 go. And that was like my first big result. I got like six on that stage and got a top 10 result. And um, I just, I've wanted to go back to that event, but yeah, I mean, I hope to crack some podiums this year. That's my big goal. Like, I want to be on that podium consistently. I'd like to top 10 overall EWS. Um, top five would be huge for me. So that's my goal. I want to stand on that podium. So how how important is your job in terms of racing the uh, – and, and uh, I'm sorry, how important is your job if you compare racing to social media? Is the most important thing that you can do do the best – at podium yeah so there's two ways to get paid in the sport you either back up results or you Mm -hmm. have a big social following or a blend of the two right so it's it's been interesting with covid last year like a lot of it flipped to social and i think a lot of companies saw that and it's hard like unless you're in the top 10 top 15 your results don't matter like a top 30 rider it's hard like you need to be cracking 
stage times where you get in the news, you know, like pink bike post your name. Like mm-hmm. at the end of the day, we need to sell bikes and that's, it's cool. <laughs> like I, I, you know, I want to get more people in, you know, on bikes and stoked on it. So I think finding that blend of the two is, is really important, but not getting too obsessive with social, at least for me, like it's, it's a hard one. Like it's definitely an addictive thing and like pretty unhealthy. And I try to do it, you know, on rides that I know that I'm not training hard and like, I know I could be better at it. Like, I mean, always you can be better at everything, but, um, yeah, man, like results are definitely, I think the most important, especially for a company like Yeti Mm -hmm. it's, they've been, you know, race bred since day one, which I love. Like, that's what I love about biking in the beginning for me. Like I was chonky. I was a fat little kid and loved to express myself on my bike. Like that's what I wanted, you know, like it, it gave me this purpose in life and it's cool with Yeti. Like the results, like if, if I get the results, like they back me up and that's all that matters. And that's what I love about racing. It's, it's such a plain thing. It's like, you just, you put that stopwatch on that timing chip and the results don't lie. If you do the work, you get rewarded. There's no, there's no judge. There's no, you know, like hearsay. It's like, Hey, I won the race. Let's move forward. You know, I love it. So, but with social, it's, it's such a big piece of our sport and something we have to do. And I think it's cool. Like each rider has their own style of how they do it. Like what Richie does is not what I do. Um, And I think that's what makes it so unique. And it's, I think realizing how valuable it is and making it and trying to like collaborate with the audience, I think is really cool because we have so many unique individuals that follow us. I've been trying to figure out ways to like maybe do like a local challenge on my local trail or something for like a bag of coffee um, Mm -hmm. and seeing if people will do it. So that's kind of on my to-do list of getting, you know, some more engagement that way. Cause there's mm-hmm. so many rad riders in the front range that are absolute rippers. Like there's a kid chase Willie who did this nose pick down this huge rock that I was like, how did I not think of that? Like there's so many <laughs> rad riders that you just don't know of, you know? And like, I don't know. It'd be cool to get some challenges going, but that's kind of off topic. So, well, you know, it's, it's actually kind of cool from my perspective. You've got a lot, a lot of different irons in the fire. It's not just racing. You've got a really cool social media, even if it's just, jamming in the skate park, shirt off, going huge, where it's like ripping corners on just a quick like Instagram reel, or it's the things that you're doing with um, grow cycling and traction coffee. But when it comes down to it, what's really cool, and I'm, I'm so excited for the season is you have everything set up for the season. You have every reason to do well as a racer this season. And I am so excited to see because it's like, you're right there. You have, you have everything on your favor to be in like win EWS. And I feel like you're hungry for it. Is that right? Totally, man. I mean, after traveling Europe and kind of knocking that off my bucket list, now it's like, all right, like I can win one of these things. And like, I think that Mm -hmm. was when I got my first um, downhill win. I was like, I can do this. And it's like the same feeling. It's like, I know that I'm going to look back depressed and being like, why didn't I work harder if I don't knock off a win, a world title? So like, that's what fuels the fire. You know, like I know when I'm 50 looking back, I don't want to be like, what if, and that's how it was before when I was working in the oil fields. It's like, Mm -hmm. it was that what if it's the same feeling. It's like, 
what if I would have worked harder? And I didn't think I was ever going to have the chance again to race. Like I truly thought it was over. And that's why I went to Whistler. I was like, I just want to ride before life comes at me. And luckily, you know, positioned myself and ran into Joey and like had his trust in me. And that whole led to my racing career. But I think the same thing with not knocking off a win or a, that type of thing i'm gonna look back and be so mad at myself so that's mm -hmm. what gets me up in the morning and be like hey like you need to work like it's not all rainbows and glitter you know like there's some <laughs> days like that i'm just like over it or like i'm depressed or those things and like the highest highs in my life have been from racing and the lowest lows have like i've yeah. been after a race in tears man like in and then after, you know, Trophy of Nations being on the top of the world. And I think that's what makes it so beautiful. Like you have to have those low moments to really appreciate the highs. And yeah, like I think I wouldn't change it for the world. My trajectory, you know, like I wish I would have had more drive or purpose when I was younger, but I think it's made me really appreciate yeah. what I have now and the opportunity I have. I think if I was given this ride from Yeti when I was 22, I wouldn't have been so fortunate for it, but now it's like, you know, like I'm doing what I love and I wouldn't change it for the world. So Sean, thanks for this conversation. I'm so excited to see what this season's going to bring. Um, it seems that everything is stacked up and aligned for you to completely crush it. So I can't wait to see what kind of season you're going to pull through here. So from all of us at uh, the Yeti nation, go and, Go full gas, buddy. <laughs> <laughs> Always, dude. <laughs> any final comments? Um, I guess any kids or uh, people looking up, if you want to make this a living, just there's no plan B. Figure out what you need to do and just be stubborn about it. Force their hand and just give it everything you have. That was when my life changed when I thought there was no plan B. And uh, yeah, there's so many kids out there that have so much talent mm -hmm. that just you know, just end up in the wrong spot. And if you want it, it will come, you know, like that's it. You just have to have the want. So I hope to see those kids up and come. So I appreciate your time and uh, yeah, Vikings give me everything that I've wanted. So I hope to see that for other people. All right, Sean, go kick some ass, would ya? You're the man, Marty. Thanks for your time. <laughs> And into season two, here we are. For all of you out there who love something, that is how you make a career out of pure passion. To be honest, before I met Sean and basing my opinion merely on Instagram, all I saw was this privileged homie from Colorado. A guy that sessioned the skate park shirtless midday, drank expensive coffee, and got paid to just goof off on his bike. From a distance, it kind of seemed like everything was handed to him. But man, it's the furthest thing from that. From biking to coffee, Sean's commitment to what he finds most interesting and his drive to make it happen is truly impressive. He is real and so is his story. Thanks for tuning in. I had a ton of fun with this episode and I'm so excited for more. Yeti Nation, thanks for tuning in. You know what to do. Until next time, pinner to winner. <laughs>